All right, I'm going to get into the Word, and I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about Israel, and I'm going to talk about the feasts. Listen, we're living in the last days, and I'm going to tell you, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. And um, this is the time when we need to make sure, and I'll get into this later, we need to make sure that we are right with the Lord. If there's anything that you need to get right with the Lord, if there's any person you need to go to and make things right, whatever you need to do, um, we're living in some times when the Lord could come back at any time, seriously. And I'm going to show you some things tonight that's probably going to shock you. Uh, they're undeniable. And I'm going to do a series, so we're going to continue this thought pattern for the next couple of weeks or however long we go, maybe quite a while. I'm going to talk about end-time prophecy in the Bible, help you understand Daniel and Revelation. I'm going to talk about some of the things that's going on in our time that's fulfilling end-time prophecy. And I'm also going to talk about deception. Because that's one thing that I really want to help people to be guarded against. All right, so it's a little bit deeper tonight, so give me your best ear. And I'm going to begin talking about feast, and I'm going to end talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the feast of the Lord. All right. When the children of Israel were about to leave Egypt, okay, we're, this is a, a picture in type. We're about to leave this world to be with the Lord. I mean, it's the signs are there. It's not that far off. The coming of the Lord really could be in your lifetime, and that is not an exaggeration. You could see with your eyes, you're actually going to see in the next two years, you're going to see some, some biblical prophecies that were given thousands of years ago. You're going to see some biblical prophecies the next couple of years come to pass. You may see with your eyes the Gog and Magog War of Ezekiel 38, because Russia and Iran and these, these different countries are already aligning themselves. And you can actually see that in your lifetime. That's how close we are to the coming of the Lord. Okay, And I don't know if uh, what type of uh, preaching some of, some of those that are here have been around or whatnot, but this is something we need to be talking about. Amen? All right. So the children of Israel, when they were in, in bondage to the Egyptians, the last plague God sent, remember, was the death of the firstborn. And he told them to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home. You guys have seen this? You guys seen the movies, all right? Charlton Heston, whatever movie it was. And they, they had to take the hyssop, dipping in the, the lamb's blood, and paint it on the doorpost of their home. And when the death angel came into Egypt, the only people that did not have their firstborn killed was those that had the blood. Okay, This is the power of the blood. And let me mention, too, about feasts. I'm going to get into that. But God instituted his feast. The children of Israel celebrate these feasts, but they're God's feast. They're not Israel's feast. Okay? And so God instituted Passover, and that's what they were celebrating. They had to take a lamb that was without any blemish whatsoever. Take that lamb into their home. They had to kill that lamb, shed its blood, and that lamb would pay for the sin of that family. And then they would take that lamb and they would put the, uh, the blood on the doorpost and then they could leave or whatever. And it was safe for them to leave and depart. And they didn't have anybody in their family that had died through the plagues because of the blood protected them. Are oh, you seeing what I'm saying? So in these last days, we're about to leave out of here those that are truly God's bride, those that are truly right with him. But the blood needs to be applied to our lives. There were three major feasts in the Bible where God himself met with people. Let me give you an example. God appeared to Abraham. A lot of people don't realize this. 
Genesis chapter 18, God appeared to Abraham. There were three angelic figures that showed up to Abraham. And Abraham saw him. And what would you do? Okay. He was nervous. I'm sure his knees knocked together. You know, and he's thinking, we'll prepare some food for you. You know, so he runs and gets Sarah to, to cook. And, and back then it wasn't like pop something in the microwave. It took some time. Okay. And so they, they were cooking up a meal. But God had come down and met with Abraham. And they sat down and ate together. Okay. It's in Genesis 18. And then there was another time that Israel was at Mount Sinai. And God came down over Mount Sinai, if you remember, and he settled over that mountain and it was shaking under his power. It was literally melting rock. And the children of Israel were scared. It was like this loud shofar blast. And God made a covenant with them at Sinai. But Moses went up the mountain and some of the leaders of Israel went up there with Moses. But before they went, they had Moses had taken and he had killed some animals and shed their blood. And he had taken that and he had sprinkled the blood of that sacrifice on the children of Israel and on those that were going up. So whenever those leaders were going up the mountain, you got to understand, they had blood that was sprinkled on their garments. They had blood that was in their hair. And whenever they went up to be in God's presence... They got up there, and the Bible says, you can read this, I got the scripture right there, that they saw God, and they lived. And God did not get angry with them. He didn't kill them. Why? Because of the blood. The blood is what protected Israel when they left Egypt. The blood has always been a protection. And it's also been something that enables us to get into God's presence. It's the blood, okay? So once again, you see that God, the children of Israel were up that mountain and they had a feast. And they were there in God's presence. They had a feast with God. They fellowshiped with him and they didn't die. All right, the next time, you see God became a man in Jesus Christ and came down. And what did Jesus do? At the Last Supper, it was Passover. And he sat down with his disciples, broke bread, celebrated Passover, and they had a feast together. So there were three times in the Bible, I'm talking about major significant times, where God feasted with man. Isn't that powerful? Abraham, then Israel, and then Jesus had the Passover with his disciples. So God is into fellowship. The Lord has always wanted to have fellowship with people. The reason he created Adam and Eve was for fellowship. The Bible says he would come down and walk with them in the cool of the day. And because of sin, sin, sin is what separated man from God. It wasn't God's fault, and God didn't uh, distance himself per se. He had to, but it was the sin that brought the separation. Okay, And from the time Adam sinned, God began a process of redemption right there. But in these last days, I don't have time to teach on it tonight. I did a whole sermon on communion. It's in the Priesthood of the Believers series. And it's somewhere in the middle of the series, and it's called The Table of Showbread. So if somebody's interested in going back and hearing that, I would encourage you to do so. And then also in the series I did on prayer, I think it's part two, I talk about approaching God, and it's the power of the blood. But in these last days, many of you already have a foundation about the power of communion. But the Lord's Supper communion will be very powerful in these last days and very important. It's going to be through the communion, taking the Lord's Supper. Okay, that is helping to prepare us to depart and be with him. 
Just like it was with the children of Israel, they had to um, sacrifice that lamb and they had to eat that lamb. But what was the Passover? Remember, they would eat that as they were in Egypt and they had staff in hand ready to go. Do you remember reading that? That was part of the Passover. It was as though they were ready to go. And the Lord is doing something in these last days with preparing us in the Lord's Supper to be ready to go. Ready to depart out of here. And I'm talking about the rapture. I'm going to get to that shortly. The blood of Jesus is applied to the doorpost of our homes. And God's getting ready, getting a people ready to leave the earth to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then he'll shift his focus back on Israel. A couple quick things about the Lord's Supper. Again, I just have to touch on it. But number one, we know that it applies the blood to your life fresh. Of course, the, the blood can be applied by faith. You don't have to take the Lord's Supper. But the blood is applied to your life, bringing protection. Number two, there's a deep consecration. God is sanctifying his people through taking communion. And then number three, there's an intimacy with God. Remember what David said? He said, God has prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. A table is a place of fellowship. And so God is is doing something in these last days. I've heard over and over and over preachers that are talking about how God's laying it on their hearts to start taking communion with their people more frequently and to teach more about the power of communion and how in these last days that, that we need to be taking communion because there's something about it that is protecting God's people. Okay. All right. So I'm starting out with feast. I'm going to end with feast. But let me let me talk about the seven feasts in the Bible. Now, again, these are feasts of the Lord, not Israel's feast. God gave them seven festivals. Now, just like today, we celebrate like the 4th of July. We, you know, we celebrate these different holidays. The children of Israel basically have seven major feasts that God gave them, and it's a time of great celebration. But it's also a prophetic timeline. If you look at this diagram and follow me, in the first feast, Jesus already fulfilled the first three. When he came, he literally died on Passover as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. On Passover, while there was a literal physical lamb that was being marched into Jerusalem to be inspected, Jesus was also being marched into Caiaphas' presence and being inspected. And on Passover, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, he hung on a cross on Passover, the day Passover, that day. He hung on a cross as the Lamb of God, and he said, he would have said Negmar, which means... It is finished. And he hung there as the perfect sacrifice. And he said, it is finished. And while he was saying that, the high priest of Israel was over their sacrifice of a lamb. And he was saying, it is finished in this way. But Jesus had fulfilled it. Amen? When Jesus was in the tomb, his body did not decay because there was no sin in his body. In the Psalms, it predicted that Jesus' bones would not be broken and his body would not decay. And Jesus' bones were not broken, even though the thieves were. And when he was in the tomb, he did not decay. He had no sin in his body, which is in the Bible, leaven represents sin. And while the Jewish people were celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus' body was in the tomb without leaven. And then whenever Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead on the very day 
that they were celebrating first fruits. And Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. So you see what I'm saying? Jesus fulfilled Passover. He fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he fulfilled first fruits at his death, burial, and resurrection. And he did it on the day of the feast. You understand that this is significant. He didn't do it around the time. He did it on the very day that they celebrated those feasts. And then when Pentecost came 50 days later, this was the birth of the church. Pentecost comes, the fullness of time, on Pentecost, the day that they celebrate Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came in power. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. They were clothed with power from on high. And they went out ministering under the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, praying for the sick and the sick were healed. They drove demons out of people. And they functioned in the power of God just like Jesus had taught them to when he walked with them. And that was fulfilled at Pentecost. So those first four feasts have already been fulfilled prophetically in God's timeline. And there was a long interval from Pentecost to tabernacles. Or trumpets, I'm sorry. So there's this long interval of the 2,000 year grace period that we're in. But I'm going to tell you the next feast to be fulfilled on God's prophetic timeline is trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. And I'm telling you, it has something to do with the rapture of the church. What does the Bible say about the rapture? It says that with a shofar blast, with a trumpet blast, the dead will rise first. That is the next on God's prophetic timeline. Then after that, that's the rapture. After that, you have the day of atonement, which everything shifts back to Israel. And you've got that seven-year tribulation. That's the day of atonement. And then the last is tabernacles. And that's where Jesus comes back to the earth to reign for a thousand years. That's going to be fulfilled at his second coming, his glorious appearing. This is God's prophetic timeline. He's laid it out. And as I'm going to show you, this is really interesting because this is kind of deep tonight. I don't, I don't always get this deep, but we're going to get into this. And you're here for a reason, I believe, because God wants people to make sure they're ready for his coming. I believe that. There's no accidents. There's no accidents. All right. But when God created the heavens and the earth, I want you to look at this. God put signs in the heavens in Genesis 1.14. The Bible says, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, for seasons, for days, and years. Did everybody see that? For signs, for seasons, for days, for years. Why in the world would God put the sun and the moon and then say, let it be for a sign? What does that mean? I mean, I understand about um, day and night being separated. I understand about winter and fall and spring being separated. That makes sense. But why did he put it there for a sign? First off, sign in the Bible is the Hebrew word oath, O-W-T-H, and it means like a beacon. Now this is, this is really important because you're about to see some end time prophecy fulfilled in the next couple years. So God said he put the, the sun, he put the moon in the, in the heavens to be like a beacon or like a billboard where he's going to use it to speak. Seasons is the word moed in Hebrew, M-O-W-E-D. And it's not just seasons like spring and fall, but the word moed can be translated festivals. Isn't that interesting? 
So in other words, God has put the, the moon in the sky and the sun in the sky. He put it up there to be a sign like a billboard that he could speak through. And he connected it with his festivals. Are you following me? There's been significant things that have happened on these these feast days that are not Israel's feast days. They're the Lord's feast days. And it says that in the Bible if you read it. He said, these are my feast. On these feast days, there have been very significant things that have happened. Signs in the heavens. And God has done very significant things in the earth. Has God spoken through these type of things? Think about it in history with me for a second. Did not, when Jesus was born, was there not a star that appeared over Bethlehem? Amen? Was that not a sign in the heaven? Did that sign in the heaven speak? Did that sign in the heaven draw people to Jesus? But it was a literal star. It wasn't something figurative. This was a literal star that hung over Bethlehem. And people even from the far east traveled looking at that star and it brought them toward Jesus. There's many other examples in the Bible. There was a time that Joshua prayed that the sun stand still. This was before they understood the earth rotated. But God said, whatever, give him what he asked for. Okay. And the sun stood still. So we see that God is in charge of this. He put them there. They're there for, for a sign and they're there for seasons. And this is the Bible, friend. Listen. And in these last days, the Bible clearly says that he's going to speak through these things. I'm going to show you that. <clears throat> let, me, let me show you about dispensations before I get into that. Before Adam and Eve was eternal past. Now try to wrap your mind around that God has always been eternal past. You think about that very long, your brain starts to hurt. <laughs> then you think on something else, right? Nobody created God. Nobody, got, nobody taught God anything. Nobody ever said to God, hey God, did you know this? God knows everything all the time exhaustively. He's always existed. He's eternal. And He existed in eternal past. When He put Adam and Eve on the earth, that's when the clock started ticking. He put the sun and the moon. He created day and night and the seasons. And there was a timing in all this. And when Adam fell... From that moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God told them, he said, I am going to, through the woman, I'm going to bring a seed through the woman. And he, even though that serpent will strike his heel, he's going to crush the head of that serpent. And God prophesied to Adam and Eve, I'm going to send a Messiah through the woman. That even though Satan will strike him at the cross, he's going to crush the devil's head. And raised from the dead, basically. Okay, he prophesied it right there. And then he took Adam and Eve and he killed an animal, probably a lamb, but it doesn't say he killed an animal, shed blood, and showed them that there's blood is required for the remission of their sins and gave them those to wear. But when Adam and Eve sinned, God began a process. And we know this is dispensations and it's been over 6,000 years. If you can look at this diagram, it'll really help you understand it. But there was a time, dispensations are... What God was doing in that time frame. Whenever Adam and Eve were on the earth, it was called the dispensation of innocence. 
They were required to obey God. They disobeyed God and suffered the consequences. Then you have the next dispensation. This is conscience. There was, they were supposed to be doing good. There was blood sacrifice. If you read the book of Job, you see that the father during that time would get up and shed blood for the remission of sin for his family. He would kill an animal so that their sins would be forgiven. That was during that time frame. But there was so much wickedness in the earth that God had to flood the earth. And that dispensation was over. Then you move to the dispensation of human government, which is when God spared Noah in the ark and his family came down from the ark. It floated back down. They multiplied the earth. And that is the dispensation of human government. Then you have the dispensation of promise. This is where God called Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you the father of, many nation, or father of a great nation. And you, and you will be a blessing to all nations. And God gave him that promise. And that was during this time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. Okay. Then after that, Moses comes on the scene. And this is the dispensation of the law. They were required to keep the whole law. Of course, they broke it. If you read every one of these, it was like a requirement. Then they broke it. Then God had an answer. Okay, every single one of them. All right, after the age of the law, Jesus came. Everything changed. We move now from law to the church age. So for the last 2,000 years, this is the dispensation that God chose for you to live in. Did you know that God chooses the time of your birth? That you could have lived thousands of years ago. You could have lived in ancient Canaan. God chose for you to be born where you were, when you were, and you're here in this time for such a time as this. But this church age dispensation has been going on for 2,000 years and it's just about over. And there's going to be a, a time, a period of change. The Bible calls the tribulation and that's where you get things like the Antichrist and the false prophet and all that was prophesied in the Bible. But you're coming into a time where the church age is going to come to a close and God's going to shift his focus back again to the nation of Israel and he's going to fulfill Bible prophecy fully fulfilling and the last dispensation will be the millennial reign of Christ where the Bible says that Jesus Christ will come back to the earth and he's going to reign out of Jerusalem and he's going to make the earth once again like a garden of Eden isn't that going to be an amazing time and it says during that time that there's going to be peace on the earth and everything is going to go back to the way it's supposed to be children it says in the Bible can play with cobras because Jesus is here. All right. So we know that God has historically used signs in the heavens to speak. God's in charge of these things. Now let me show you some things that's coming up over the next two years. And then I'm going to talk about the rapture. Then I'm going to close. In the next two years, you're liable to see some of the most significant Historically speaking, some of the most significant things happen that probably has happened in your lifetime could very well either take place or begin to take place in the next couple years. You do realize that from the time Adam fell until Abraham was 2,000 years. 
Then from the time of Abraham to Jesus Christ was 2,000 years. And then from the time of Jesus Christ till now is 2,000 years. You do realize that every 2,000 years something very huge has changed. Think about that. From the time Adam fell till he called Abraham, 2,000 years. From the time of Abraham to Jesus Christ, 2,000 years. From Jesus Christ till now, 2,000 years. We are at a time where things are about to change. Peter said, a thousand years is as a day and a day is a thousand years to God. And if you look at the six days of creation, the seventh day was a day of rest. It's the same thing I just showed you. Six thousand years is almost up. And the seventh thousand year, that thousand year reign of Christ is near. Maybe a lot more so than what we realize. Do you realize right now while you're sitting there listening to me, those are live streaming. You're hearing me talk. Do you realize that right now, in your lifetime, three-fourths of Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled? And the last fourth could be fulfilled quickly. Let me give you a couple things. If you look at this diagram, it says 2014 to 15. Look underneath it and go down to Acts chapter 2. Let me read you this scripture. This was actually quoted from the book of Joel. And Joel was written a long time ago, friend. And listen, back then they didn't understand a lot of the things that we do as far as technology. There's no way they could have predicted this stuff. And when you're dealing with the Bible talking about the moon being turned to blood, there's no way that that's talking about, there's no animals up there. Okay, there's no people, there's no way that it's natural blood. There's nothing to make it that way. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 17. It says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. That's happening right now. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens. Did everybody see that? I will show wonders in the heavens. Now, I'm assuming that everybody here believes that the Bible is true and the Bible is God's word. The Bible says, I will show wonders in the heavens. That's what it says. And signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness. That's a solar eclipse. And the moon to blood. That's a full lunar eclipse. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, with that scripture in mind, I want you to look back at this diagram with me. What a blood moon is, because a lot of people don't understand, this is what NASA calls it. It's red. What a blood moon is, just look this way, I'll explain it. A blood moon is basically where the sun is here, the earth is in the middle, and then the moon is behind the earth. So the sun cannot shine directly on the moon because the earth is blocking it completely. And so the sun is shining and it's a little, a little bit of that light is able to get through and it makes the moon look blood red. And NASA calls it a blood moon. That's what a blood moon is. These do happen periodically. And when they have happened, just one, when they've happened on feast days, historically it's been significant. Now, what a solar eclipse is, let me 
just look this way again, a solar eclipse, you've got the sun, then you've got the moon moves in front of the sun completely and blocks the sunlight from the earth. That's a solar eclipse. Okay. What is commonly known is that lunar eclipses with the moon has to do with Israel. Solar eclipses with the sun has to do with the nations. Now remember I read to you, God said, I will show wonders and signs in the heavens. He says it. And he said very clearly that he's put the sun and moon up there to be a sign, to be a beacon. Now blood moons happening on feast days has always been significant, but I want you to see something. For there to be a blood moon on Passover in 2014, then a blood moon on Sukkot, which is the tabernacles. Then you've got a solar eclipse, a blood moon, a solar eclipse, another blood moon. All of these taking place on significant either feast days or significant dates with Israel. There is no way that that is a coincidence. It's just not. It's not possible. This is so extremely rare. Let me tell you how rare it is. Four blood moons is called a tetrad. It has only happened eight times since Jesus walked the earth. Did you know that? Eight times. It has only happened three times in the last 500 years. Three times. In all three times it has happened in the last 500 years, it's been connected with the nation of Israel. And let me give you the three real quick. In 1492... There was a tetrad of blood moons, four blood moons. And the Jewish people were living in Spain. And you had the Inquisition. And they began to try to force the Jewish people to be Catholic. And the Jewish people didn't want to be Catholic. So they were you know, tortured and all that. But they were expelled out of Spain. And as they were expelled out in 1492-93 time frame, while that's going on, Christopher Columbus was sailing and finding the Americas so that the Jewish people would have a safe place to go. The second time that there's been four blood moons was in 1948 when Israel became a nation. I hope people realize how significant that was. God prophesied very clearly in the Bible that in the latter times that he would regather the Jewish people back to Israel. They were scattered to 81 nations. They spoke 71 different languages all over the world. The nation of Israel was, was not inhabited very much at all. There was just people that, that just dwelt there, but it was not a nation. It did not have a capital. It was just there. But they were scattered literally all over the world. But God had spoken. He said, I will regather them in the last days. And it's in Ezekiel 37 when you read of the Valley of Tri Bones. Ezekiel 37, I believe that that picture of the Valley of Dry Bones spoke of the Holocaust of Hitler. I believe Ezekiel saw the Holocaust. I really do. And after those dry bones, God spoke to Ezekiel and said, can these bones live? Is it even possible? There was a question in Bible prophecy where one of the prophets said, can a nation be born in a day? How in the world, after all those years, thousands of years, how in the world could God bring a people back from all over the world like that and a nation be 
born in a day, as the Bible described it. It was supernatural. And the prophet Isaiah said, I will bring them from the east, from the west, the north, and the south. Listen to this. That's exactly how God brought them. He started with from the east. They poured in from Iran and places like that. Then he went to the west after Hitler. They started pouring in from the west. Then they came from the north, which is Russia. They poured in from Russia. And then they came from the south, which is Ethiopia. It was a sovereign move of God. There is no way that this could have happened. Against all odds, God brought them back as a sign and a wonder. And talking about mixture and deception, what has concerned me is the anti-Semitism in the world and in the body of Christ, how people want to um, look at Israel like the church replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. And that is a major deception. God is not through with Israel. Individual people have to come through the blood of Jesus Christ to go to heaven, but he, God has a covenant with the nation of Israel in that land that he made with Abraham. And how many knows when God makes a covenant and he swears by himself, he's going to do it. Anyway, God brought those people back. And so some of you think, you know, how can God bring in my lost loved ones? How can God move my family into the will of God? How can these things happen? If God can take people from 81 nations, speaking 71 different languages, all over the world that's been scattered all those years, and bring them back to that land and make a nation out of it, he can do anything. So in 1948, there was a four blood moons and Israel became a nation. And then in 1967, Israel took Jerusalem. You realize how significant this is? So those over the last 500 years, there was four blood moons on those three dates. And every time there was four blood moons, something huge happened with Israel. But not only that, it seemed to start bad, but it turned out good. How many times does God allow things like that? You know what I'm saying? It starts bad, but it turns out good. I don't know what's going to happen over the next couple of years, but I do believe something very significant is going to happen. There's too much going on. Whenever I could go through it, but I would lose everybody because there's too much information. But when people have messed with Israel, there's always been a very strong retaliation. And just in America alone, just giving you a couple quick examples, I mean, I could give you examples going back to Britain, Spain, Rome, all through history. But in with America, it began with George Bush Sr. When he started doing the Madrid peace talks in 1991, it brought what later became a book and a movie called The Perfect Storm. Okay, You start messing with Israel, it's an eye for an eye. And then Clinton continued it, and it brought things like tornadoes and all kinds of stuff that hit on the day they were messing with Israel. And George W. Bush, was it, two, was it 2005 that Katrina hit, or 2003, somewhere in there? George W. Bush had Ariel Sharon give up the Gaza Strip. Now, the Bible specifically says in the book of Joel, do not divide my land. Those that divide my land will suffer the consequences. George W. Bush pressured Ariel Sharon excuse me, to give up land for peace. On a seaside city, the Gaza Strip, they had to evacuate. There was people, the Jewish people that lived there lost everything. There were helicopters that were coming down 
and they were rescuing people off their housetops. They were waving. Now, thanks to that brilliant decision, now in Gaza, Hamas is launching rockets almost every day into Israel from the Gaza Strip. That was not a smart move. There was nothing good that came out of that. Ariel Sharon, right after he decided to do that, had a stroke, went to a coma, and just recently died. Bush faced Katrina. When you're dealing with Israel, you're dealing with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Here in America, they pressured Israel to give up land for peace. Then we face Katrina. And in Katrina, you're dealing with a seaside city, just like Gaza. And if you remember the news footage, you had people on the tops of their homes doing like this as Coast Guard helicopters rescued them off the tops of their homes. When you're dealing with Israel, you're dealing with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and judgment comes swift. And now we've got a president that's been the most, probably the most anti-Semitic president we've ever had. At least he seems that way to me and most people. And you've got John Kerry wanting to pressure Israel about Jerusalem. And we've, we've seen the consequences. I don't know what's coming over the next couple of years, but if they keep pressuring Israel to give up land, to keep messing with them, to give up Jerusalem, you're probably going to see some catastrophes in America as retribution. That's just the way it is. So over the next couple of years with four blood moons, what does that mean? What is God trying to say? I don't really know. Nobody knows for sure. Could it be that Israel goes to war? Could it be that they're tired of messing with Iran? And since Obama's not going to do anything, that they decide, you know what, we're going to go do something. And they go over there and take care of business with Iran. I don't know. Could it be the Bible prophecy about Damascus? One of these days, Israel's going to nuke Damascus. Could it be that Israel goes to war with all those terrorist nations around them and they expand their borders? But what you got to understand, Israel's got to have more land because they've got to build the temple. And this is how close you are to the coming of the Lord. Right now, while you're sitting here, Israel has already built all the furniture and everything else to go in their temple. And that's a fact. That's how close we are to the coming of the Lord. All they got to do is take a little bit more land, which could happen any day, and start building that temple. That's the very temple the Bible says the Antichrist will sit in. And that's the very temple that one day Jesus Christ will sit in and reign from. But Israel is God's time clock. And you're seeing, think about this before I move to the next thing. Joel prophesied in the last days, I will turn the moon to blood and the sun will be darkened. Think about this for a moment. While you're sitting there in your chair, you're living to see that happen. Think about how close we are to some things being fulfilled. You could see, and you possibly could see in your lifetime, the rise of the Antichrist, as the Bible says. All right, a couple more things. Israel is God's fig tree and time clock. When God speaks of Israel as a nation, as a natural nation, he refers to them as a fig tree. When he speaks of them as a covenant nation, they are his olive tree. And, of course, Christians are wild olive shoots that are engrafted in. In the book of Romans, it talks about that. When he speaks of Israel as a spiritual nation, they're a vine-bearing fruit. When he speaks of them in a backslidden condition, they are a bramble bush. We need to be ready for what's coming. 
The Bible says, seek righteousness and seek humility and be hid in the days of the Lord's wrath. Let me just talk to people for a minute. I want everybody to hear me. I don't know where everybody stands about where they're going to go to heaven or not. I don't know. But I'm going to give you the pure gospel. If you don't want it, I've done my part. It's off me. Okay, but the pure gospel is this. We all have sinned. Okay? And we know that all of us are going to die. If you look just at the law, it helps us understand how we have sinned. The Bible says, you know, not to lie. Has any of us in this room ever told a lie in our lifetimes? If you say you haven't, you're a liar now. So you're doing it in God's house. Number two, have you ever stole something, even something little? Number three, the Bible says not to commit adultery. And the Bible says to look with lust is to commit adultery. So have you ever looked with lust? And on that, have you ever been messing around having sex outside of marriage? This is sexual sins okay, in God's eyes. Number four, the Bible says if you hate somebody, you've already committed murder. Have you ever hated somebody? And believe me, I could keep going and you're just going to keep failing the test. Okay. So the point is, is that people are guilty of sinning before God. If you were to go out right now and rob a bank, shoot some people, and you're on video, you're guilty. There's no doubt about it. And you stand before a judge, and there he is in his black robe, and they put the video up there, and there you are. You're guilty. That judge, if he's a fair, righteous judge, he is going to be required, because you've killed people, he's going to be required to send you to the electric chair. He's fair. So those of us that have sinned before God, you've got to realize we're going to stand before him one day. And our lives are going to be shown just like a video screen. And we're guilty. So God being fair and being righteous, would he send you to heaven or hell? So let me, let me continue the story. Let's say you're standing before that judge in a black robe. You're guilty. And a stranger comes in the courtroom who's never broken a law in his life. The guy's never even littered. Okay? He's never done anything. He comes in the courtroom and there you are guilty. You're about to be sentenced to the electric chair. This is serious. You're scared half to death. And this stranger goes up to the judge and says, Judge, even though he is guilty and I'm not, I'm willing to go to the electric chair for him and die in his place. And his debt to society will be paid in full at my death. And he can walk out of here with a clean record where he's, he's, there's no record whatsoever of any of his criminal activity. He has a clean slate. How would you feel about that stranger who had never broke a law but came in and died in your place? That's what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And the Bible says if we will be willing to turn from our sin and put our faith in him, that we can be born again. But born again is not, well, my, my parents were Christians, so I guess I'm a Christian. No, that's not born again. Born again isn't, well, I live in America and most people are Christians, so any, many, money, mo, I'll pick Christian. I like that one. That's not born again. Born again isn't, hey, I hang out with Christian people. We can, people can still go to hell, you know, with a choir book in their hand, baptismal waters dripping from their face. That's not what saves you. What saves you is not even a prayer. I can lead you a little prayer. If you don't really truly mean it, it's not going to save you. 
What saves you is turning your back on sin and putting your faith in Jesus, and there's a born-again experience. And that's what I'm concerned to a lot of people out there that they're saying that they're Christian, but they're not living it. There's got to be a new birth. When, when you're born again, John 3, 3, Jesus said out of his mouth, unless a man is born again, he will not inherit the kingdom. So unless you're born again, you're not going to go to heaven. You can sit in church services. You can take communion. You can do whatever. You're not going to go to heaven unless you're born of the Spirit. Born again means that now the Spirit of God now comes in you and you're different. You're a different person. You can look back over your life and go, I used to be that but I was born again, and now I am a different person. Once you're truly born again, you cannot continue to live in sin. You don't really want to because Jesus changes you. As a human being, you're different now. All of a sudden now, you find yourself being hungry for the things of God. All of a sudden now, you want to read the Bible. You want to pray. You want to go to church. You're different. You used to love all this garbage over here. But now it's like, I don't really want that anymore. That's what I'm talking about. And so tonight I'm going to finish this, but I'm going, to, I'm going to take a moment to give people a chance to get their lives right with Jesus. Okay, is that all right? We have got to be ready because you, this is the truth. You know, the people could leave out of here and get hit by a car and die tonight. People could, the Lord could come tomorrow. Bible prophecy is fulfilled enough that there could be a rapture tomorrow. There's no telling when we're going to die. There really isn't. So I want to give people a chance to make things right with God. So I want you where you're at. Just close your eyes for a second. Here in a moment, I'm going to lead you in prayer. But I want people to be serious with God. Because people can leave out of here and still not be in heaven. We've got to be willing to turn away from things. And give our lives to Him. So Jesus, here in a moment, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to lead them in a prayer. But, but Lord, we put them under the blood and we bind anything that's trying to hinder people from getting everything right with the Lord. I mean really right. I'm not talking about, well, I've gone to church the last 10 years. I've, I've done all this stuff. I've done Hail Marys. I've gone to confessional. None of that. It doesn't matter. Right now, it's about getting right with the Lord. His, his blood that he shed on the cross will wash away all that sin out of your life. It's like a spiritual soap that literally washes all that pollution out of your life. And you can be free from all that garbage. So if you want to get everything right with the Lord, and you're serious about it, I want you to say this out loud, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer, okay? So everybody that wants to be right with Jesus, just say this out loud. Dear Jesus, tonight, I realize I have sinned. I have broken God's laws. And because of that, I'm on my way to hell. And I thank you, Jesus. That you loved me enough. That you came here. Lived a perfect life. You died on a cross. For me. So that my sin could be forgiven. And tonight. I believe Jesus. You are the son of God. You died for my sin. You raised from the dead. And I ask you to forgive me. From all my sins. Let me be born again. Right now. I receive it now. 
Let your blood wash away all the filth in my life. Change me. Set me free from all the junk that has bound my life. So I can live for you. Fill me with your spirit. I give you my life, Jesus. It is yours now. Change me. Cleanse me. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you meant that tonight, if you meant it, the Bible says that you are taken from darkness into light and God's going to begin to change you. Okay? Let me give you a few more things. I want to talk about the rapture. That's the next thing on God's prophetic timeline is the rapture. And I'm going to close this out. But right now, I encourage people, seek righteousness and seek humility and be hid in the day of the Lord's wrath. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. That means if there's things in your life that's been holding you back, do whatever you got to do to get rid of it. If there's been pornography, if that means you got to take your computer and go throw it in the garbage, it's better to live a life free from a computer and go to heaven than it is to burn in hell for eternity and have a computer while you are here on earth. Amen? If it means that you've had an alcohol problem, dump it down the drain. That's repentance. If you've had a drug problem, what you do is you go to the toilet. You throw it all in the toilet and you flush it. That's repentance. Okay? If you've had relationships in your life where you've been sleeping around with people, that's sin. Unless you're married. That's sin. That means you get that out of your life. You break that relationship. Go on with Jesus. Okay? Things that's been holding you back. If you've had weird stuff in your life, like witchcraft stuff and all that, you get rid of it. Go through your life. Clean house. I'm telling you, Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. And I'm warning you to be ready. Get the sin out. And if there's people that you've wronged, if you've hurt them, you've stolen something from them, you've done something that's wounded them, you need to go to them, phone call them, go to them, talk to them, and apologize and make it right. If there's something where you need to make things right with people, now's the time. Okay, Let's get right with the Lord. The Bible says to come out and touch no unclean thing and be separate. That's what the Bible says. True Christians will want to turn away from these things. There's a warning in Revelation 18.4. Come out of her, my people. Don't share in her sin, and therefore you won't share in her plagues. All right, so let me close with the rapture. Y'all ready for this? All right, the rapture of the church. I'm going to give you 12 biblical proofs that there is a rapture. And one extra biblical example. Those that have diligently studied the Bible feel confident that there's a rapture preceding the days of Jacob's trouble. Those that do not believe in the rapture usually do so based on a dream or a vision that they had, an isolated scripture that they take out of context, or they simply have bad eschatology. I love what David Yonggi Cho said. He said, regrettably, even though the Bible makes a clear distinction between the two comings of Christ, some people are still mistaken in the interpreting of what will happen. When they teach that the church will go through the tribulation, they not only hurt themselves, but they also lead others astray. 
All right, so let me give you a few examples. Number one, ancient witnesses. When Enoch lived, there was a man that lived that walked with God, and one day, poof, he was gone. He was raptured out of here. Enoch lived in the same days that Noah did. He was Noah's granddaddy. They knew each other. They hung out. Noah went over his house, granddad, and they hung out, okay? They knew each other. In that evil, wicked day that they lived, the days of Noah, God raptured Enoch out of there, and he left Noah there to build an ark because he wanted Noah to replenish the earth. Otherwise, he would have took Noah too. And so, first off, you see Enoch was raptured out of an evil generation, but you see that Noah was a righteous man, and when the wrath of God came on the earth on the wicked... Noah and his family floated up, and they were protected. When the wrath of God subsided, Noah and his family came back down to replenish the earth. Okay, God made a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Elijah lived in a very wicked generation. Queen Jezebel, Lord help us all. She lived during that time. Baal worship. A lot more evil than I have time to explain. It was so bad in Israel that even though the whole nation was supposed to be serving God, God said, I have only reserved 7,000 that have not kissed Baal. Think about that for a minute. Millions of people in that nation, only 7,000. That ought to tell you how wicked it was. And God raptured Elijah out of there. Let me tell you something cool about Elijah. The Bible in Malachi said that before Jesus comes, that Elijah would come. Before Jesus came the first time in his ministry, God sent John the Baptist, and the Bible said the spirit of Elijah was on him. Remember that? Before Jesus comes in the rapture, the spirit of Elijah is coming on his bride. Before Jesus comes in his glorious appearing, Elijah the prophet, I'm talking about the Elijah, he's going to be in Jerusalem with another prophet, and they're going to be prophesying. It says that in the book of Revelation. So the, so the Israeli people are going to see that Elijah did come just as God said. He's going to be in Jerusalem prophesying. Well, those that haven't read their Bible just freaked out. That's in there, okay? It's in Revelation. <laughs> I've seen people, you know, all right. It's in Revelation. All right. And then also, what about the days of Lot? Lot was a righteous man, but he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was filled with perversions and wickedness and and, you know, God was sending fire to come down and he was going to destroy that. But God made a distinction between Lot and Sodom. And he rescued Lot out of there when the judgment of God came down. So the first thing we have is ancient witnesses. That God makes a distinction between the wicked and the righteous. Okay. And Jesus said it would be just like it was in the days of Lot and Noah. Noah's day was filled with all the Nephilim, the, the violence, the perversions. Lot's day was filled with sexual perversions, especially homosexuality. But even in those wicked times when the wrath of God came down, God delivered the righteous. All right, the second thing is there's two appearings of Christ and there's no way that they're the same. It's an impossibility. The first appearing, Jesus is in the air. This is the rapture. The second appearing, Jesus' feet touched the Mount of Olives. And that's a big deal because it specifically says that his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. So there's no way that these two are the same appearing. So look at this. In Acts 1.11, Jesus was there. He had raised from the dead. He's hanging out with his guys. They're there. All of a sudden, Jesus starts floating. 
They're watching him float up in the air and disappear. The angels that were there said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come just the same way as you watched him go. That means he's going to come back down and his feet are going to hit the Mount of Olives. In Zechariah 14.4 it says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in the middle from east to west and a very large valley will form. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. But anyway, it's very clear his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. And that's important because when he came the first time, um, everything the Bible said would happen, happened exactly like the Bible said it would happen. For example, he'd be born in Bethlehem. He'd be raised in Nazareth. He would come out of Egypt. Everything about his life, it predicted it. The third point is there's a difference between the body and the bride. The body of Christ consists of a lot of people that go to church and say, I'm a Christian. The bride of Christ are actually those that know the Lord intimately and really live a righteous life and really know him. You can ask somebody that's in the category of the bride, what's Jesus been speaking to you lately? And they can actually tell you because they spend time with you. So there's a difference between the body and the bride. The body is a lot of people, but the bride of Christ is a remnant. The remnant are the ones that are going to be raptured. The body, there's a lot of people that are playing games. They're not going to be raptured. They're going to be here okay, during the tribulation. Let me give you an example. This is another, another example. In Jewish tradition, a Jewish young man would wait at the well and look for a beautiful wife. It was part of the young lady's chores to go out and draw water from the well. So the young man would approach the father of the girl. Once he saw a girl that he liked, he would go to the father and offer a dowry. A dowry was, they would bring them a lot of money or whatever. It was to honor the father, honor the family. The young man would give what he could and the father would set the price. As the young man would then come to the house and the father would receive that dowry, there would be a cup of wine that was poured and set on the table. If the girl was willing in her heart to agree to this contract, she would drink the wine there in their presence. So the young man would be excited. What would he do? He would run out and begin to prepare a dwelling place for them. He would begin at his father's house to build a bridal chamber. Uh, hopefully you guys are starting to see the parallels. Jesus is looking for a bride. The cup of wine represents communion. That's what we have. And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And that's what he's been doing for 2,000 years. This could take up to two years. The father would also guide his hands as he built. After the bridal area was built and complete, the father would declare, it is time to go get the bride. The father, what did Jesus say? He said, no man knows the day nor the hour but the father. So the father would say, go get the bride. When it was time and the house was built, friends would run into town ahead of the groom And shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Now the girl, she had a lamp by her bed and would put oil every night before going to sleep and make sure that the wick was trimmed and the lamp is ready for his coming. She was always ready for his coming. She lived on the second floor. Anyway, he would put a ladder and he would go steal her away in the middle of the night. Jesus said, I come like a thief in the night to steal away a bride. 
So that leads me to this point. The thief in the night versus Jesus' glorious appearing. There is no way that's two, uh, the same thing. Jesus said, I'm coming like a thief in the night. All, all these different scriptures about him coming like that to steal away the bride. But then you have scriptures about his glorious appearing where it's going to be like the lightning that shines from the east to the west. The whole world will see him. It's going to be announced. These armies are going to be slaughtered. How can you reconcile that being the same thing? It's not. Jesus is coming as a thief in the night to catch away a bride who's going to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb while the earth goes through the tribulation. But then after all of that, he's coming back to the earth. Amen? And so this is the example of his glorious appearing when his feet actually touch the Mount of Olives. Now listen to this. But immediately after the tribulation, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars fall from the sky. We're looking at blood moons and things, but this sounds a lot more intense than that. So what is this? Stars falling? What is that? Meteors? What is the sun not giving its light? Volcanic, you know, volcanic eruptions, nuclear war. I mean, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see all the tribes of the earth. They will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds because there's going to be people that live through the tribulation that, that are the Lord's. A couple more things. The priestly garments. Jesus talked about wedding garments. In the, in the Old Testament, the priest would change, the high priest would change to the next high priest and they had to wear those garments in the tabernacle area for seven days. We're going to be with the Lord for seven years. That Those that are his bride, anyway, will be with the Lord for seven years at the marriage supper. And it's like the priest seven days being consecrated there. We're going to be with the Lord seven days to be consecrated with him to come back and reign with him. The next reason I believe there's a rapture is because of the feast. I just showed you the feast. There's two different feasts for his first coming than his second coming. The next reason there's a rapture is because the Bible calls the tribulation the day of Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble. The next re- reason is because the 70th week of Daniel. 69 weeks dealt with Israel. Jesus came. We had the church age, and now the 70th week is going to be the tribulation, and it's, it has to do with Israel, not the church. The next reason, the New Testament says we're not appointed to wrath, and we'll be saved from the wrath. The wrath there is, uh, I'm sorry, saved is sozo, and it means also to deliver and protect. Then there's a scripture that says, comfort each other with these words. Can you imagine comforting your brothers and sisters with, we're going to go through the tribulation, probably die. It's going to be a horrible time. Jesus says, worse than the world's ever seen. And, um, you know, we're, we're either going to take a mark or we're going to be hunted like animals. Okay. Is that comforting to anybody in here? All right. So we're supposed to comfort each other with the words that the true bride, those that have made themselves ready, will be raptured out of here. Jesus taught us to pray that we might escape these things, not endure them. Luke 21, read this with me. Be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things 
and that, that are about to take place and stand before the Son of Man. It's interesting that there's been so much mocking and ridiculing about the escape mentality or whatever when Jesus taught us to pray that we might escape these things. And then that's my 12 proofs that there is a rapture. The 13th is an extra biblical thought, but if there is no rapture, why has Satan's servants worked so diligently to try to discredit it and explain it away? Why would they waste their time? And those that don't believe in the rapture, let me just give you something to think about. From what I understand from the Bible, we possess the promises of God by faith. If you don't believe, where does that put you? I don't know. I'm just asking a question. We possess the promises by faith. Amen? And I just gave you scripture from Genesis to Revelation proving it. But there's still people that won't believe. I know. All right. I'm going to skip this, but let me give you the last, last couple things. In these last days, the Bible says Jesus is coming back for a bride without spot or blemish. Ephesians 5.27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and blameless. So in these last days, what you've got, it's like what I talked about last week. There's people that are more experience-based. They don't know the word as well. They try to base everything on experience and these prophetic dreams and things like that. And because of that, they get into some deception. You've got to base doctrine on the Word. If you don't like that, you're going to have a deception problem. I'm just telling. And that's why certain people don't like the rapture teaching for whatever reason. But it's they're like, well, it's an escape mentality and they're real critical of it. But the truth is that Jesus taught us to pray this way. I'm not trying to escape things per se. But whenever, while I'm here, the Bible says, I'm, God said, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. I'm doing everything I can to be a part of the last day revival. The Bible says at the end of the age is the harvest. I'm doing everything I can within my power to be about bringing souls into the kingdom. And then the Bible also says God is in these last days going to prepare a bride for Christ. I'm doing everything I can to help prepare a bride for Christ. Preaching the word, that's the washing of the water of the word. And what does the Bible talk about? Extra oil. If you read the story of Esther, I want to close with this. If you read the story of Esther, she, she had oil beauty treatments or whatever for like six months or 12 months, and then she would meet with the king. The Bible says that there's the, the parable of the wise virgins that had extra oil. What God is trying to do is, He's trying to wash the bride with the washing of the water of the word and pour into them extra oil to prepare them for his coming, prepare a bride for his coming. But see, when Jesus comes back in his glorious appearing and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, this isn't like a a bride being wooed away. (laughs) This is him coming down and slaughtering the enemies of Israel. Literally. But see, his first coming... He's going to come in the air and he's going to call away and catch away a bride. And that's what I want you to be ready for. I I don't want it to come on you like a thief in the night and you're not ready for it. I want you to be like that woman that's uh, in the Jewish tradition that your lamp is by your bed and you're looking for him. You're waiting for him. So how are you going to be ready when Jesus comes? Live holy. Get the sin out. Live holy. Number two, spend time with him in prayer. 
get in church, get in the move of God and stay put. Don't let something get you out. That's that's the thing. It's so easy, it's so easy to get out. Stay in the move of God. Get ready. See, people think, well, every week I get prayer. You're not wasting your time. God's pouring into you extra oil and he's preparing a bride. He's preparing you for his coming. Is as that extra oil the Holy Spirit is pouring into you, that does a work in you. How many of you guys can say, Pastor Scott, since I've been coming to Riverfly and I have felt God pouring His Spirit into me, I feel like a different person than I did years ago. Wave at me. All right. That's pretty much 100% of those that's been coming, okay? And I'm sure live streamers were... So here's the thing. The oil, the oil pouring into you is changing who you are. The Lord is pouring into you His Spirit, His presence. We need that. It's a preparation. So as a pastor, I'm doing everything I can to be a part of the last day revival and a part of the harvest because that's what God's doing. You know, Don't try to do your own thing and ask God to bless it. If God already said, I'm pouring out my Spirit, bringing a harvest, why not partner with that? Okay. So I'm trying to, to move with that. But also as a pastor, I want to be a part of what Paul said. He said, I am... Um, he said to the Corinthians, I don't want you to deceive like Eve. I wanted to offer you as a pure virgin to the Lord, a bride for him. I'm trying to help prepare a bride for his coming. By preaching the truth, that's a washing of the water of the word, and praying with you that there's extra oil poured into you. Is this making sense? All right. But you can see, when you see the book of Joel... I'm not saying that we're not going to have more blood moons and eclipses. There probably will be. But you're, you're seeing in two years, you're going to see with your eyes some things that were prophesied over a thousand years ago. You're going to see it with your eyes. You're going to go outside and look at the moon and realize that Joel prophesied that in the Old Testament. That in the last days, I'm going to turn the moon to blood and I'm going to darken the sun as a sign. And he said, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. All of that was prophesied about and you're going to see it. I've been waiting for some credible signs that Jesus is coming. Amen. I've been waiting for some credible signs that Jesus is coming. And you're seeing credible signs in the heavens. You're seeing credible signs on the earth. And I'm going to pray. And then those that want prayer tonight, you want extra oil. I'm, I want to pray with everybody that wants prayer tonight. Lord, I thank you for your awesome word. I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we know your coming is near. We don't know the day nor the hour. Only the Father knows. But we do see the signs. We do see the Bible prophecies being fulfilled in our lifetime. And we do realize that it is approaching. And this is the time we need to be praying for our lost loved ones and really praying for them. Lord, because the day and the hour is short and we don't want them to perish. But Lord Jesus, if you could draw these Jewish people from 81 nations all over the world and make a nation in a day, you can save my lost family. And Lord, we believe that you can. This is the time to be praying for your family and witnessing to them, talk to them about Jesus, encourage them to get right with him. This is the time to get in church and get things right with the Lord and get ready. But Lord, I thank you. Seal this tonight in the hearts of every person. And Holy Spirit, come in power. Lord, change lives. Pour into people tonight to where we're all different when we leave. Pour into us extra oil tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
right, I want to shut down recordings, Brother Zach, and we're going to pray for those that want prayer. Um, if you could also put on some worship tonight.